0: Welcome to a little bit of Florida here in California. This is where the
1: early planning is taking place for our so-called uh, Disney World project. Everything in this room may change time and time again as we move ahead. I tried to get, uh, tried to get a job uh, doing anything I could in the studio so I could learn.
0: Well, if I had it to do over again, uh, I think, uh, no, I don't think it would.
2: <laughs> I don't know, I hope I don't have to do it over again <laughs> WDW
1: Radio, your information station
2: Hello my friend and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 460, and I'm here once again not only to help you have the best possible vacation experience when you come to the parks, but I also want to bring you a little bit of Disney magic with the podcast, videos, blog, books, audio tours, and more. You can also join me every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern as I broadcast live on Facebook either from the studio or from the parks. You can find everything over at www.radio.com and join me live at facebook.com/slash Lou So there are so many moments in Disney history that have defined and shaped not just the movies and the theme parks, but pop culture and movie making and family entertainment and so much more. And this week, we're going to imagine that we can go back in time and discuss those moments in Disney history we wish we could have witnessed. I think you might be surprised at some of the events that made the list, and then I'm going to want to hear what's on the top of your list as well. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show. I'll have more information about upcoming WW Radio events, Meets of the Month, my special Momentum Workshop weekend in Walt Disney World, your voicemails, and more. So sit back... Relax and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. my first visit to Walt Disney World in November 1971, I've been fascinated by its history and not just the the genesis of the Walt Disney World destination itself, but really its earliest beginnings. And the farther back I journey, the more I learned and the more intrigued I became not just about the place, but of course about the man behind it and so many of the important events that happened along the way. And the more I learned, the more I grew to love the place and the stories and the man and the teams and the other people that made this all happen. And I think that if we want to truly understand Disney today, you have to look back upon its history. And recently, very recently, in fact, I was with some friends in the parks and one very Late, late, hot night, we're waiting in the queue for Space Mountain. One of those friends was talking about some of those moments from Disney history he wished he could have seen in person. And with that, the idea for a show was born right then and there. And so this week, we're going to explore moments from Disney history we wish we could have witnessed. And joining me is first the man who came up with the idea, a friend, a member of the WW Radio Nation, and the running team. He is Dr. Louis Passauer from the great city of New Orleans, Louisiana. Hey, Lou. How are you tonight? Good, brother. How you doing? Good. Excellent. Also joining me, um, because she was there with us in the queue and part of the conversation, is longtime friend, (laughs) fellow foodie, also a member of the Nation and the running team she is the lovely and talented miss alisa sharp alisa welcome thank you good evening gentlemen i should say welcome back because i think you guys have you've been on before for running team shows or food related shows and usually the running team shows end up being food related shows or or something like that
1: yeah That's exactly well, they
2: <laughs> so I, uh, I love this idea, um, and I told you that, Lewis, right when, when you said it in the queue, um, because for me, my passion for Disney really is rooted in its history, and it obviously began with the theme parks, and that led me down the trail to learn more about Walt the Man, the, the dreamer, the doer, the father, the entrepreneur, as well as the teams of people that were behind him and with him And not just what he created, but really the legacy that he left behind. But as you were saying when we were talking, Lou, that I I agree that there's so many historical, important, and really powerful moments in Disney history that forged and or changed the direction of not only the company, but one that – things that transcend into – pop culture, and entertainment, and so much more. So I almost call this a top 10 moments in Disney history we wish we could go back in time and be there for, but I will tell you that I have way too many on my my list alone. So what I want us to do tonight is go back through some of those moments, and I'm sure there's going to be overlap, and the history could be Walt Disney World, Disneyland, entertainment, whatever it want to be, and I want you to sort of talk about Those moments that you wish you could go back in time and pay witness to as a fly on the wall or mouse on the floor, whatever it will be. And Lou, because this was your idea, uh, I want you to go first. And like I said, I'm sure there's going to be some some overlap in our lists.
1: Okay, uh, I believe I will start with what I think potentially was a big turning point for Walt Disney and the Walt Disney company. And that was in 1934 when he developed the idea for the first full length feature film, Snow White. And in fact, in doing research, I didn't realize that Roy and Lillian both attempted him to talk him out of this and that his budget for the film was (laughs) $250,000
2: It's like he was making the Blair Witch Project. (laughs) In in
1: 1934 dollars. (laughs) Right. And he ended up spending 1.488 million to create Snow White, including mortgaging his own house to get the project done. And so that's why I think it's such an important piece, because if Snow White doesn't work, nothing else comes behind it. And I think the most important aspect of that is the story when Walt had his nine old men and he had sent them out to dinner and I think paid for a steak dinner, brought them back to the office, and he had the storyboard laid out for Snow White. And he sat there and he acted out all of the roles of the film and really got them on board with this is a project that we need to do.
2: So, uh, this was somewhat sort of on my list, and I think it's, it's appropriate almost that, that we start with that, because I'm assuming, Lou, that this is maybe one of the things that sparked the idea for you. Um, I had Snow White on my list, but for me, the, the moment that I wanted to pay witness to was really the premiere of Snow White itself you know that that night in December when there are you know there's 30,000 people outside that can't get in and like you said Walt mortgage so much and I and when I say mortgage I don't mean just financially I think just his reputation and so much was mortgaged on this film which was called Disney's folly I mean people were just predicting this was going to be a massive failure. I mean, it went everything from the the movie credits to pop culture and entertainment to doctors that were coming out and saying, you can't go see this film. You're going to have seizures from watching a cartoon for two hours. But to be there on that first night at the Carthay Circle Theater and wondering what Walt, felt like that night the nerves that he must have had as well as the excitement and all those other people that were around him from the Hollywood celebrities look and you've seen pictures of you know Charlie Chaplin was there and, and Shirley Temple and Milton Berle I mean the list went on and on and on. all of Hollywood came out for this thing that was predicted to be you know the flop of the century and look as an entrepreneur I love the idea that this um, incredible risk turned out to be this amazing opportunity, which was the catalyst for everything that he did afterwards. So, to be there, you know, if I could walk with Walt, as it were, you know, down that red carpet and sit in the back of the theater with him to hear the applause and the cheers of the people inside, that would be the the you know hour and however many minutes that I would like to witness. Gala event, unusual even for Hollywood. The world premiere of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Rarely has Hollywood been so agog over the opening of a motion picture. The town's been talking about it for months. Practically the entire movie colony will be at the opening tonight, and you're going along too. As We take you to the Carthay Circle Theater for the premiere of Walt Disney's full-length Technicolor production, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. We take you now to the Carthay Circle Theater. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. This is Don Wilson speaking, and we're standing right now outside the Carthay Circle Theater here in Hollywood, California. Among the glamorous stars and the foremost executives of film are assembling here to pay tribute to Walt Disney. Tonight, the cartoonist, creator of Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and a host of other beloved characters the world over passes another milestone in his amazing career. He's showing his first full-length feature animated motion picture, the first one that's ever been made, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And now here's, uh, here's a gentleman that I'm sure you all want to meet. It's Walt Disney, the creator of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And he's just arrived. Mr. Disney, will you come up, please? Well, I'm very happy
1: about everything.
2: Well, Walt, I, I think you're due to do all the talking tonight. Uh, tell us a little bit about this picture, will you? Well, uh, it's been a lot of fun making it. We're very happy that... Being given this big premiere here tonight, and all these people are turning out to, to take a look at it, and I hope they're not too disappointed. Well, I'm sure there won't be. I've seen the picture, Walt, and you're going to be congratulated. Now, can you tell us something about uh, some of the characters in the picture, particularly uh, Snow White and possibly the seven dwarfs? What about them?
1: Well, our favorites are the little dwarfs. There's seven of them.
0: We've uh, got names for them all that sort of fit their personality, such as uh, Doc,
2: who's the pompous leader. And then there's uh, old uh, Happy, the uh, smiling little fellow. Yeah. And uh, Grumpy, the old sourpuss, the woman hater. Yeah. And I can't remember them all here tonight.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think I was looking at it more from the creative side. That just seeing uh, potentially the way Walt's mind was working and thinking and you know, sitting there with those animators who never had heard the concept before and learning it for the first time. And and then, like you said, seeing it through to the production, you know, so kind of maybe not one moment, but the process, I think would have been fascinating.
2: Well, and I think you're right, too, because, you know, it wasn't just the outside critics that were skeptical. A lot of people in the animation team were skeptical as well. You know, when he came to them and said, this is what we're going to do, you know, people said half jokingly, you know, he really didn't say no to Walt. But there were admittedly people in that room that were skeptical at first, but when he stood there and acted out the film, you know, they they got a sense of not just his vision, but I think when you see the enthusiasm that he performed with, I think it is uh, contagious and I think that's probably what happened to those people in that room. So I think sort of piggybacking on it, I would like to see that moment too. I'd like to see Walt telling his team about Snow White and, and acting it out for them in front of the storyboards.
1: Yeah. And you know, for what he risked, the original theatrical release between us and international box office made over 11 million dollars. in 1937 yeah. dollars or 1938 cuz it the other thing is it was only released in Carthay Circle and Radio City Music Hall and another theater in Miami until RKO decided to release it nationwide in February of 1938.
2: Yeah, and it looks so, it continues to be, you know, decades later it continues to generate revenue. Like every time you know every time they re-release it it makes not just millions but tens of millions of dollars.
1: Well, it's been re-released 10 times and so far the Disney company has made 418 million dollars. Hmm. But there's more. In March of this year the Walt Disney Company announced That they would be doing a live action version called Rose Red, which is focused on Snow White's sister.
2: Interesting. That's a set, you know what? And that's almost a separate conversation for a separate show about the not just the remaking of so many of the classic stories, but remaking them in terms of live action. You know, whether it be uh, Cinderella and some of the other stories that have been remade into live action, maybe that's an idea for another show. This is how they this is how they come about, (laughs) sort of on the fly. So, um, all right, Elisa, do you either have anything to add, or what? What is one? What's sort of that first moment that came to mind? Um, And maybe I should have said this to you, Luz. Maybe what would be the the if you could only go back to one? What would that moment be?
1: That would have been mine. That would have been yours. If for if just one moment that would have been mine.
0: All right. Do you guys make it tough to pick one? <laughs> picking my favorite restaurant. Um there's no so you know, there's no wrong going, answer. <laughs> I know, I know. But I was going to huh, of the ones on my list, I would say oh, I'll just go with the first one on my list. It's uh August nineteen forty one. So I've been watching a lot of documentaries lately. And Walt and El Grupo came to my mind. Wow. Um, 19, yeah. So, And only because, think of all the things that came out of that ambassadorial trip. So Walt and 16 of his animators and their spouses and key people in the Disney company go down for a month-long trip to Central and South America, right at the, 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 the beginnings of the second world war and you know the, the nazism was increasing so they go down they spend a month down there and out of that trip comes things like saludos amigos and the three caballeros and lots of art that we see around the parks i would have loved to have sat in a big circle with them. Um, There's tons of sketches they did and seen some of the drawings as Mary Blair was drawing them. Um, People on the trip were the Disneys, um, Mary Blair and her husband, Herb Ryman, Frank Thomas. Um, Those are some pretty well-known names. And that just appealed to me to be in that room in a relaxed environment,
2: lots of food, lots of drink, I'm sure. It didn't take long for somebody to bring it back to food. <laughs> and
0: everybody is, their guard is down and they're just having a good time.
2: So I think it that's.
0: Had, yeah, it had such an impact on the next 10 years of projects.
2: So that was very much not on my radar but I think it's a really interesting uh, fascinating choice because if you think about the the time frame when this is going on you know back in 1941 that was a bad bad time for not just the company but Walt right the the animators had gone on strike he had to shut down the studio he again had mortgaged a lot of the the, the money and profits that he made from things like uh, Pinocchio and Fantasia and even going back right to, to yours those uh, money from the profits from Snow White and some of those movies was starting to to dwindle and he's got all these very difficult very Uh, angry bitter uh, labor negotiations going on and so what does he do he's like we're going to South America come on kids and and he you know like you said he takes not just his wife but a lot of these um, uh, these animators and employees to go down on you know something to almost like a a diplomatic mission to um, to to South America and if you've never seen Walton El Grupo um, it came out I think I want to say 2009, 2010. Um, Theodore Thomas uh, is, I think he was the writer and the director for it. And he's the son of Frank Thomas, who was one of the nine old men who was with Walt on that trip. And it might not sound like something like, oh, what do you want to watch on Saturday night, Walt and all group, it, but I'm tell it is a fascinating um, story. And there's so much footage that was actually shot uh, on the trip itself, and it's just, obviously it's a great way to look back at that timetable. But I think it is a very interesting look, not just at the Disney company, but at uh, young Walt. I mean, Walt wasn't even, you know, 40 yet, um, and he's he's built this company up so much and then is starting to falter with a lot of not falter but run into a lot of other problems with these things and goes to South America almost as uh, you know somewhat as as an ambassador Um, and I think it was an important moment not just for Walt but for the company itself so kudos to you Elisa for uh, for going you know way into left field on the second one on the list all right all of was it, was I the only one with that
0: on the list?
2: Yeah. I mean, I didn't have it. I did not have it. Um, Excellent. You know, I, I didn't sure.
1: have – sorry, go ahead. I didn't, have it, I didn't have it either, but to add to that, some of the research I did uh, because of the – and it really was – it seemed like World War II that helped put the company in that financial state because they weren't getting the international box office because of the war in Europe that Roy issued the first public stock offering of the Walt Disney Company in 1940. And then the animator strike hit in 41 when they were trying to cut their uh, salaries. And there was one thing I read where they were surmising that Walt went on this South American tour to not be around when the resolution to the animator strike occurred, which would be unfavorable to the studio and have the stock take a hit. So yeah. almost as if this may have happened by accident, but look at what grew out of it.
2: Yeah, and you're right. And and you know, going to your point, you know, it was not just a, a difficult time for Walt and the company uh, with the war. I mean, he was in debt to the tune of, and it was like three and a half million dollars to to Bank of America. So I mean, this was it was very interesting timing. I think timing is everything. But when you watch. The Walt and El Grupo film, which I think you would either stream or you can get on Amazon, what I like watching is less about what is going on in the company and more about Walt himself. Because I think you get a little bit of a peek behind the the public persona that is Walt and see a little bit more of, again, I, I look at sometimes Walt as entrepreneurial inspiration. So you see the passion, you see the intense side of Walt, and you also see a, a passionate, fun-loving side of Walt, because you do see some of it with, uh, you know, with Lillian uh, as well, sort of enjoying a lot of the, the culture as well. So it's a very interesting, I think, portrait of, you know, Walt, the, the man, Walt, the husband, Walt, the boss, um, and, and I, I think it's a really unique look into um uh, his life and I think all the things that came after. So I dig that yeah. I, I dig that that on man now I now the pressure's on me because anything I'm gonna say after that is so lame. Um, <laughs> you know when I started to think about my list um and I tried to do the same thing like what's the one moment? what's the one moment that I would want to see? And so many different things jumped into my mind. Whether it was, well, do I want to see that that catalyst moment early on? Do I want to see, you know, something that that relates to theme parks? Want to see something that was, you know, groundbreaking? Uh, something that was maybe even a little bit that didn't involve Walt. Um, so my list is in no order, but I'm I'm going to go back into what I think is very much. Uh, A turning point, again, for not just Walt, but certainly the company as well. Uh, I think there is a monstrous um, entrepreneurial lesson that I like to to, uh, extrapolate from this and and share with others. And if I could sit with Walt and Lillian on that train ride to New York, um, that's where I would want to be. Right. He the, the quote from Walt is, he says, you know, Mickey Mouse popped out of my mind onto a drawing pad on a train ride from Manhattan to Hollywood at a time when the business fortunes of my brother Roy and myself were at its lowest ebb and disaster seemed right around the corner. So from a, a business, from an entrepreneur perspective, it is the worst possible time in his business career and sometimes you never know when these moments of inspiration are, are going to happen. Obviously, there was a lot that had happened with Charles Mintz and the the loss of uh, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Before he gets on the train, he sends Roy a telegram, not telling him, oh, just so you know, the company's about to fold, but it just said four words. Don't worry, everything okay. Like, don't worry about it, I got this. But it was on the train ride that he first conceived of the idea of Mickey Mouse, and you know the story he wanted to call it Mortimer. I would love to have sit there when Lillian was like, Walt, what are you nuts? Mortimer's the stupidest name ever. No kid is gonna buy a Mortimer doll. Now, Mickey, now we're now we've got something here. Um so I, I think I would like to have seen that because of that conversation, because of the, the watching that sketch go on there. The the conversation with Lillian and probably that fear that Walt must have had internally like that he had over and over again, like probably when he got on the plane to, to South America, about all the things that he had dreamt of and worked for about to potentially disappear, and it's at that lowest moment that some of the greatest inspiration or some of the greatest opportunities happen. So uh, if I could sit next to Walt and Lillian on that train ride from, Holly, from uh, to, to, um, to New York, that's what I think I'd like to, um, that's what I would like to have been. It would have been awesome.
0: I wonder wonder what they
2: had in the club car. What (laughs) kind of food they had in the club car. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
1: (laughs) Elisa, I think you mentioned that when we were discussing this, um, that you were thinking of that one too.
0: I was. um, I would have liked to have been more like a fly on Lillian's shoulder because she was observing all of this and they weren't, they were relatively young when this happened and they hadn't been married all that long. And I'm sure she was thinking, what the heck have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and where's my next meal coming from? Because she was there. And even though he didn't share with Roy, what had happened, she knew what had happened. So that was intriguing to me as I would have been curious to know what was going through her mind at that point.
2: Yeah, because you're you know you're leaving New York to go back, and it was not a, a you know it was not a, a great trip there. So you're right. She probably I think that's very interesting to be able to ask Lillian, you know, what she was thinking, what she was feeling, uh, because I think sometimes the the significant others and the spouses and the families of entrepreneurs um, have as much of an important and, and difficult role as the entrepreneur themselves.
1: I agree. Well, and, and you, this led into, you know, Mickey Mouse wasn't an instant sensation. Uh, it, the first two features, "Playing Crazy" in the and "The Galloping Gaucho," he couldn't even find a distributor for. And it wasn't until "Steamboat Willie" where they added sound that Mickey Mouse finally hit. But even through that, uh, Pat Powers, who was the distributor for those cartoons wasn't or Walt felt he wasn't paying the, the fair share and then that ended up causing Ub Iwerks to go work for Pat Powers and leave the company and then Disney ended up hiring some local artists who ended up being the nine old men so through the process of the struggles became the foundation for what led the success
2: yeah and, and look you know that's like the quote says you know it, it's it's when disaster seemed right around the corner is when that, that success came about. And I think that, that sometimes makes the reward uh, much, much sweeter. So, all right, let's, um, let's quickly, not quickly because it's WW Radio, but let's somewhat quickly, try and quickly move through our list because I'm sure we have uh, many, many more to get through. So we'll keep the, uh, the same order going. And Lewis, since this was your idea, you're next.
1: Okay. Uh, the next one is, is kind of what inspired this topic. Uh, we were in line before we rode Space Mountain for the Carousel of Progress, and they have those TV monitors showing the Sherman brothers with Walt sitting next to him, and that kind of got me thinking of, of being there for that creative process, and I sort of extrapolated into sort of a bigger picture, and I don't know if there's one moment, but that moment where Walt decided, okay, we're going to get involved with the World's Fair – and how we are going to, you know, go after this and really develop the foundation for, while Disneyland was around, the the things that were developed for the World's Fair became the foundation and success of the Disney theme parks.
2: Yeah, interesting. Uh, again, that was something that was um, that was not on my list. I did not have that on my list.
1: So if you go through and kind of it i guess it began inspired in uh 58 when walt was working on um the edison expansion for disneyland the edison square expansion for ge and that morphed in the 59 ge asking walt to develop a pavilion for them for the world's fair which obviously gave rise to the carousel of progress and as the president of the world's fair wanted Walt Disney to be more and more involved and they got it more and more involved with other pavilions. And you look at the magic skyway whose technology was adapted into the people mover and eventually was adapted into the Omni system, like the Haunted Mansion and, and many other Disney attractions. And then of course, not to forget the audio animatronics, which he had just developed into the Tiki room, but had not been developed into the human side and they tested it with uh, Lincoln and, of course, tested it with Carousel of Progress, which, you know, the audio animatronics, obviously, we have today got their start with the World's Fair. So, so much of what we know of potentially Walt Disney World and the attractions was created through that process of the World's Fair, in addition to... And probably one of the biggest... Successors of it is Pirates of the Caribbean, which was slated to be a walkthrough attraction and at a wax museum, it becomes animatronic because of Lincoln and Carousel, and becomes a boat ride because of Small World. So three of those pavilions morphing into what we know as Pirates of the Caribbean.
2: Yeah, when you uh, when you said it, the thing that I thought of first was the being able to be a fly on the wall or a, a man in the room for some of the conversations between Walt and the Sherman brothers specifically. Um, you, you know, I've I've had Richard Sherman on the show before uh, we've probably all seen, um, you know, the, the, the film about the Sherman brothers, or if you've read Walt's time, it's it's a fascinating book, but to be privy to some of those conversations and the creative process, I think is what would fascinate me most.
1: Well, that's that film that they show outside of Carousel of Progress, where Walt says, that's that's it. That's the spirit we're looking for.
2: Exactly. All right. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say, and it's not, it wasn't just one Sherman Brothers song with Carousel, but of course they also did Small World.
0: Right. I actually had the 1964 World's Fair on my list, but in a different sense, just from A Visitor to the Fair – Um, Disney had such a presence in that fair and took so much out of that to use many times over but I found it interesting that the theme for the fair had something to do with, I'm trying to remember Peace Through Understanding I think was the theme for the fair so that's where the idea for It's a Small World came from and you know how I feel about Mr. Sherman and, and Small World.
2: <laughs> so the, the, well, the World's Fair was, was on your list? It was. So would it just to have been an attendee, just to be able to spend a, an afternoon at the World's Fair as a guest?
0: Yes. And experience the what would later become attractions in its earliest incarnation.
1: To be able to, to connect those dots interesting you know one of the other things that came out of the world's fair was the small world pavilion walt had raleigh crump do the um four winds tower Mm -hmm. i think it was called which kind of became their first weenie (laughs) right because it could be seen from they said it could be seen from everywhere at the world's fair to to bring people in and if you look at Cinderella castle versus sleeping beauty castle. You can see how Walt was thinking in 1955 prior to the world's fair, and then look at sleeping beauty castle and you can see how he was thinking after the world's fair.
2: Yeah. I think one of these, I, I can't believe I haven't done a show about the 64 65 world's fair and the importance um, and the connection the the Disney connection to it. So I will, uh, I'll have to add that to my list. So, all right. So since, Lisa to- uh, uh, sorry,
1: I was gonna say that's two. That's two uh, ideas so far. <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> so at least I assume that the World's Fair was probably that. That doesn't count as one of yours, so you can move to another one on your list.
0: Yeah, I was actually in my honorable mention list. We can do that, right? An honorable mention
2: list. Sure, why not?
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, next one on my list was November 1965. And I would have loved to have been able to accompany the Florida project team as they visited the swamps that would eventually become the Magic Kingdom. So it was Walt Disney, Card Walker, Joe Potter, Joe Fowler, uh, the lawyer Bob Foster, and I'm sure there were others there as well. But I love looking back at the pictures and photographs that they have of them walking an unrecognizable swamp area and knowing that that's now main street or the magic kingdom.
2: I love that one. I never even thought about that, but you're right. And sort of maybe combining, but sort of the quote unquote, the, the plane ride over and the first time that they are surveying that property after seeing, so many different locations, including New Orleans, um, you know, on the East Coast and, and St. Louis and New Jersey and Palm Beach. But when he gets there and he, you know, flies over Riles Island and Raz Island and it's like, yeah, this this is it. This is going to be the place. And then steps foot, you know, feet on the ground, boots on the ground and is walking the property. Um, that certainly looked nothing like, you know, it was nothing but murky, mucky. Awful swampland and, and orange groves to have that vision and foresight and to, you know, to be sort of peer over their shoulders as they're, looking, as they're looking at the maps and the vision that is starting to happen at that moment. At least I think that's really, really fascinating. And to sort of be there for when they, they said, yeah, this is it, this is where we're going to build, um, you know, our, our East Coast Disneyland.
0: And you've got to know Walt's wheel, the wheels in his mind were probably turning a hundred miles an hour and the vision that he had in his head, he could probably already like, point to places and know where he wanted things to be.
2: Yeah. And just I- to be
0: part of that like crowd to hear that conversation would have been so awesome.
2: Yeah, and because I have to imagine that Walt was probably, you know, like an excited schoolboy. I mean, he's got this vision of what this place is going to be. Everybody's rallying around him. And yeah, you know, when they get back and they realize that, you know, the the soil was awful and the surveyors, there was so much of the land that surveyors weren't even able to sort of go through because the vegetation was so overgrown. I mean, you couldn't really penetrate so much of that land. There were probably so many people that were saying, Walt, you know, this probably isn't the best place. Maybe we should go. And, you know, he's like, no, this is it. This this is, this. here we are. This is where it is going to be in the middle of the swamp. But everybody else around him was probably scared to death and in disbelief. But... You know, Walt had the vision, like you said. You know, Bob Foster, the attorney and stuff, who was there. It would be interesting to have he- heard some of those conversations, not just with Walt in his presence, but maybe some of the conversations that they had when Walt, uh, you know, excused himself out of the room. They were like, "What is this guy thinking? What is he crazy?" There's you know, twenty seven thousand acres of swampland. We just, I mean, supposedly they flew. You know, they didn't. They weren't fly. They didn't fly over the area that first time for for very long. Um, but yeah that would have been a a fascinating fascinating conversation and conversations we've been a part of
1: it, It's a brilliant idea and but I think Lou I think you hit it on the head those conversations away from Walt it had to start out of is he insane and yeah. then we've been down this road before with him and he is always right
2: Yeah cuz y- right you have to remember too Orlando, Lake Point, you know, look, Lake Point obviously did not exist. What was here is not what you see now. There was nothing here. And when I say nothing, I mean there was nowhere to go to eat. There was nowhere for the construction workers to, like, go after work. I mean, there was nothing here but swampland. I mean, there's, you know, stories about some of these little, Mom and pop, you know, shacks that uh, that came up that, you know, construction workers would flock to in the area just to go and get a, a drink or something after work. So, I mean, they, it really did build up around it. And you have to imagine that, you know, when they're looking and seeing that there is nothing here it, it, to them, they were building in the because it was it was the middle of nowhere.
1: Well, and I, an interesting aside to that is my dental hygienist tells a story when she went to LSU in 1970. Her roommate was from some city she had never heard of, Orlando. (laughs) And it sounds, you know, with today's obviously filter, it sounds preposterous that you'd never heard of Orlando. But in 1970, people had never heard of Orlando.
2: And, you know, I I talk. There weren't uh, really roads. Yeah, there was nothing. There were, it was, dirt and orange grove and swamp, and you know it, when I say it was mucky and murky, I mean that's really kind of what it was. I mean, it was just so much vegetation and water. I mean, the one of the first things they had to do when they got here was just get rid of the water. I mean, they had to build fifty plus <laughs> miles of canals and and levees just to get it some of the water from from that swampland. And I think you know when I I. I present a lot um, to, you know, schools or to businesses or at conferences, and I talk about this a lot and sort of this monumental undertaking that went on here. But I, but I think there's a a takeaway, a lesson to be learned, not to get all you know entrepreneurial and rah rah. But but this is this is an example of literally making something out of nothing and you put in that hard work when so many people might not have that vision and look what you were able to build. You didn't just build Disney world, right? You didn't just build a theme park. You built uh, an entire community and a city that grew up around this area. That was nothing but, you know, millions of cubic yards of dirt and swamp. Yeah. Yeah. So go do your homework, kids. All right. Um, <laughs> um, you know, when I was going through this in my mind, uh, and I'm going to sort of just go through my list as as I threw them down on, on paper. I very quickly jotted these down, uh, Lewis, after we had talked, because I wanted to see what came to mind. And I was in my car, literally just typing them into my phone. I wanted to sort of brain dump while the idea was fresh. And the second thing that I put down was just two words. It just said, well, it was three words. It said the Lost Weekend, and the Lost Weekend, as you know, is that Lost Weekend with Herbie Ryman. That that you know that weekend in September when Walt literally had to track down artist Herbie Ryman to sit down with him over the weekend and help each. I say help each other draw what was a, a very very. Uh, initial yet detailed rendering of what Disneyland was going to look like because Roy needed to take this drawing with him the following week to ABC in order to get a loan and guarantee of millions of dollars uh, in return of ownership of Disneyland uh, and obviously the, the the television show so that uh, Disneyland could get built. So that, that conversation when Walt probably called him In somewhat of a panic and saying I I need you here you know Herbie I I need you here and I need you this weekend and going from Walt's mind to him articulating it to Herbie's mind and then getting it down on paper watching that process again I'm going to bring it to you know putting in the time and the work and the sacrifice and the effort of no sleep and just cranking away and hustling their faces off for that weekend. I mean everything that look the fact that we're talking today and everything that's happened with the parks happened because of that weekend because of that one drawing that they put together over you know 40 plus hours um, you know based on a a a, 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 um, a phone call that Walt made to hurry and, and the work that they did over that weekend but to be able to sit there and watch Walt, point to this blank canvas and say no 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 the train station's got to go here and this needs to look like this and her be going no Walt. what if we did it this way i I would it would be fascinating to see how that conversation and how that drawing uh came to actually be
1: well lou and you're exactly exactly right because he had to track down herb ryman uh herb ryman as elisa mentioned was on the south american trip But then left the company in 44 to go work for 20th Century Fox with Anna, uh, making a film, Anna and the King of Siam. And then he even took a a hiatus from there in 49 to 51 to go tour with Ringling Brothers. So he, he got this panic call from Walt of, you have to come here
2: now. And he said to him, he's like, you're the only one. Like, he was the guy. He's like, you are the only one who can do this. And I love the fact that Walt's like, I will stay with you. Like, I will be here with you all 40, you know, 41, 40, whatever, however many hours it was.
1: Well, and I think you got a chance to see this at D23 in 2013. I believe they pulled it out of the closet
2: mm-hmm.
1: in an exhibit. And the detail on it, if you look at if you look at the picture online and you can find it, the detail, the thing that that was done over a weekend is spectacular. I mean, it's not just you know a spoke and hub and sticks.
2: It's almost a blueprint. I mean, it you know, and yes, some of the the names might have changed. You know, Recreation Park and Mickey Mouse Park and Holiday Land and Lilliputian Land. The names might have changed, but the overall design and layout was really close to what Disneyland ended up being.
1: It, it, it was. And then, of course, from there, Walt rehired Herb Ryman, and then he worked for the company, I think, till he retired.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it, it, he, you know, he is one of those fascinating guys, um, you know, Herbie Ryman and, and that relationship that he must have had, um, with walt um there's actually a really good book i'll link to it in the show notes, called warp and weft uh by john donaldson which really talks a lot about um herbie and his work um for the company so yeah if i could have been a fly on the wall over that weekend um there was probably a lot of crackers and chili consumed uh by walt and herb but i would, lo- would love to have seen and played witness to the lost weekend
1: What must Herb Ryman have thought of Walt to actually have dropped everything and showed up?
2: Well, and obviously he bought into the idea, too. He obviously, you know, and and Walt certainly, uh, you know, what did Walt say to him that convinced him or the respect and admiration that he must have had for Walt to do that? You're right. Yeah. So, all right, um, Dr. Lou, back to you. Okay, um, my next big one actually doesn't,
1: It's part of the Walt Disney Company, but it doesn't involve Walt itself, I think, for the first time. And it was a lunch meeting in the summer of 1994 at the Hidden City Cafe in Point Richmond, California. And it involved John Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, Joe Ranft, and Peter Docter. And at that lunch meeting, as they were wrapping up Toy Story, they were discussing, what do we do next? And at that lunch meeting, they came up with napkin sketches of Bugs Life, Monsters, Finding Nemo, and Wally. And of course, really six movies, if you count Finding Dory and Monsters University, that spawned from that. But those four movies from that one lunch meeting made $1 billion. <laughs> It's a pretty good, <laughs> that pretty was a good, good lunch. lunch. That was a good. What did they? I <laughs> yeah, want to know what that they was ate. A good lunch. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: I want to know what sort of uh, inspiration they. What's what? What's that inspirational food that they must have had?
1: Yeah, uh, unfortunately, in 2012, the Hidden City Cafe closed, so you can't go there and 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 eat. But they did give it a cameo in Monsters Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Early on in the movie, when Mike and Sully decide they're going to walk to work instead of taking Mike's car, one of the stores they pass along the way is the Hidden City oh. Cafe. Oh, and
2: cool.
1: of course, and of course, it it, it was unfortunately uh, Peter Doctor, or, uh, Joe Ranft, I think it was, passed away at an early age. But Lasseter, of course, directed Bugs Life, and Peter Doctor directed Monsters. And then Andrew Stanton directed both Nemo and Wally. Mm-hmm. And he said Wally haunted him <laughs> for a long time because at the meeting he said they had said, wouldn't it be cool to do something sci fi involving a robot? And then they thought about the Robinson Crusoe story of being kind of abandoned on an island by yourself or being left on planet Earth by yourself. And from that grew the movie Wally.
2: Which I will tell you is one of, if not my favorite, Pixar film. I think it's beautiful and brilliant, um, especially the the first part where you can tell such an incredible story without a single word being spoken, much like the beginning of um, much like the beginning of up, same type of thing.
1: Well, one of the things I was reading is some of the inspiration for Wally literally came from silent film actors. And silent film comedians from the 20s and and back before that, um, including Buster Keaton and uh, Charlie Chaplin, that Stanton said was an influence on creating Wally.
2: You know, kids who are listening now, going, "Mom, what's a silent film? (laughs) Like, does that just mean that my wireless earbud buds need to be recharged?" Like, I what?
1: The first Mickey Mouse cartoon was didn't have sound.
2: Yeah. But like you said, it didn't. It, would, it took it took <laughs> sound and Steamboat Willie to really uh, to help escalate them. So, all right, um, Elisa, what is next on your uh, on your list?
0: Um, I think next on my list, I'm going to uh, pick the one that we talked about when we were waiting in line at Space Mountain, and I'm a big Animal Kingdom fan, so I would have loved to have been in the boardroom. Uh, On Joe Brody's third attempt to convince the board members of the wisdom of building a fourth gate and have it be animal-related, his first two attempts, he was shut down. They said animals were boring. Every city had a zoo. You could pay $3, go in. Um, They were subsidized. They were smelly. They were dirty. So on his third attempt, he brought a live tiger <laughs> into the boardroom to catch their attention and show them that animals could be exciting and interesting. Um, I would have loved to have been there to see the look on Michael Eisner's face <laughs> when Joe Rody walked in with a 600-pound tiger.
2: Yeah, and again, not to keep sort of bringing this around to um, the, the yeah. inspirational and the motivational and the entrepreneurial thing, uh, you know, I, I love this idea, you know, of bringing a tiger into the room, right? You – actually showing people something is worth so much more than a thousand words, right? You can do – Charts and graphs and and hypotheticals and and possibilities and and you know crunch all the numbers in the world, um, but you have to sometimes do something that brings an idea to life for people, right? You know, you can talk. Look, you can talk about what a rainbow looks like all day long, but until you actually see one, you don't really know what it is. And translating things. From your mind into the tangible world, right? Whether it's the the Herbie Ryman drawing of Disneyland or bringing the tiger into the room, really sort of make things brings things from the hypothetical, you know, debate into something into a a much more realistic um, discussion. I think really brings that all home.
0: It just occurred to me, Joe Rohde was putting on Disney's version of Shark Tank. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, and he was putting on Disney's version of Disney, right? The same way Walt acted out what Snow White was going to look like, yeah, that absolutely. tiger was showing people what that experience was going to look like. That racing of the heart that they probably got was what people, he was hoping they would feel when they got onto the safari or they went on to you know, the exploration trails, whatever they might be.
1: Yeah, it's it's a just like Wald acting out Snow White. It was very similar.
2: Alisa, uh, you are. I, I mean, these are so out of left field, but I'm digging these. Like these were not on my list, but I think they are incredibly powerful. And look, they are they're turning points, right? These are are sh- are momentum shifting points in the company's history, and though some of these are ones that. You don't read about it all the time. The tiger in the room birthed animal kingdom and all the things that will have eventually come from it. And I think it, that meeting, that tiger, that moment, that second that that tiger walked in the room, everything changed in not just the Disney company, but I think even in the theme park industry. So, um, bravo to Ute for for bringing. Again, mine stink after that. I gotta come up. With this. <laughs> You know, Lou, and bringing it
1: into today's theme park, um, which uh, we've had the opportunity to experience, the Nomad Lounge, mm-hmm. and how all the banners hanging in the restaurant are from Joe Roddy's travels and research of the Animal Kingdom theme park. Yeah, yeah. and this how it is- ties in.
2: Yeah, this is uh, this is really interesting because now my mind is sort of racing even with uh, with other things. But I'm seeing that we're we're running long, Shaka, but that's okay. I want to make sure we get to all these. I'm going to try and um, and and speed things up a little bit as I go through some of mine. Um, my heart is in the theme parks, so I, I'm going to go back um, again to. It, it's a moment that was never obviously documented, but. I would love to have sat there the day that Walt got home from Griffith Park with the idea for Disneyland, right? So you know the story, Walt, was, you know, Saturday was Daddy's Day, he went to Griffith Park with his daughters, he sat on the bench eating peanuts and he said, you know, I wanted something where – I'm not just a passive observer, I want something where parents and kids could have fun together, and you know, he goes home, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, and he says, yeah, I have this idea for a park where adults and kids can do things together, and Lillian's like, Walt, what are you, nuts? Like, you know, amusement parks, they're, they're dirty, and they're disgusting, and they're dangerous, and he goes, exactly. I'm gonna do something that is completely different. And I wanna be part of, I wanna hear that conversation that he had with his wife. Cause I know what that's like. I know what it's like to have an, an idea and then go to people and they say, when you go to people and say, hey, I'm gonna leave the practice of law and sell my house and move to Florida and talk about Mickey Mouse <laughs> for an hour a week. They're like, what are you nuts, man? I, I get it. And I know what that feels like. And I also know what it feels like when somebody's like, that's a great idea. How can I help you? And, and let's do it together. So um, I would like to have been part of, of, of that conversation from the, the personal interaction with he and his wife and from the, the business perspective of, of, you know, look, Walt is, is the consummate entrepreneur. He is an entrepreneurial inspiration to me because it's another example of an idea that probably sounded crazy to everybody else in the world except Walt. And he bought into it and he sold other people on it the same way Joe Rody did decades later. So that would be a conversation um, that, that was the catalyst for Disneyland that I would love to have heard. Absolutely. So, all right, Lou, back to you.
1: Okay. So we've got to have at least one go with me here. And <laughs> this is, un, as you say, undocumented as well. But, you know, of the four boys that Elias had, Roy and Walt obviously seemed to be closer to each other than the other two. And, of course, they had that paper route that they did for about six years, if I believe I'm recalling correctly. And what must they have talked about during those times of delivering papers together (laughs) of what their future would be? And how intertwined it ended up being, in fact, it was because of Roy, is the reason why Walt went to California instead of New York, where the hub of animation was at that point in time, because Roy had tuberculosis and he was getting over it. So after, not one, but you talk about entrepreneurs, not one, but two bankruptcies, two failed companies, He, you know, that from Disney California Adventure, that song, Suitcase and a Dream, and out to, be, to meet with Roy, and from that point forward in 1923, they never never looked, had some ups and downs, but never looked back.
2: So you're wrong. That was not a go with me here because I had that on my list. <laughs> you're going, wait, Lou, I checked these facts. No, um, the, 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 the one that I had on my list, which I was saving almost to the end because was the day that he left home to you know that he left Kansas City with forty dollars and we you know we they, they talk about his uh his cardboard suitcase and his drawing materials. You leave your home in Kansas City to literally go and pursue that dream. And yeah, Roy might have already been in California, but he too was not, you know, he was not rolling in incredible amounts of, you know, financial windfalls. But when he got there, Roy gave him, again, bring it back to the business, Roy gave him the encouragement. He gave him 200 and some odd dollars, whatever there were, and then they borrowed some more to, to build a camera stand in their uncle's garage. But that leap of faith that Walt took, the day that he has to pack that bag and look in his pocket, and he's like, I got 40 bucks. I'm going to somehow get myself to California and I'm going to figure it out there. Uh, I, I I get it. I, I can relate to it again. You know, to, to tell a personal story, I, I, I hope I, I think I had more than $4 in my pocket when I went to Florida, but I'm like, I'm going to get there and I will figure it out when I do. And the love and the support and the encouragement and the sympathy and everything else of the people around you is, is so incredibly important. So, um, to see Walt, you know, say goodbye and get on that train and, and head out to California um, and wonder what, what was sort of going through his head and, and that fear that he probably had and the second guessing of of, of himself um, is, is something I would like to have, have seen and been able to talk to Walt about. That's the conversation I would want to have with Walt.
1: Well, and of course, when you did it, you had the support of Deanna. But when Walt did it, he hasn't met Lillian yet. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a decision made really solo. Um, you know, in that day and age, he wasn't on a, on a cell phone talking to his brother. <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> well, he had his iPad, so he was fine. He was kept busy in the, on the train. So.
1: Kids, there were a day without
2: cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. Uh, <laughs> all right. Alisa, um, what is next on your list? All right. I'm going to shift
0: gears just a little bit and it's not necessarily, well, I guess it's a historic moment, but it's a moment that I personally wish that I could have been at. And it's probably the first of the moments. Um, no, I guess Joe Roddy, I, I could have, I was living during that time, but, um, Epcot 1982, I would have loved to have been there for opening day. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to Epcot's 25th anniversary and that in itself was inspiring, exciting to see the rededication of the fountain of nations. I would have loved to have seen it in its initial dedication. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just a personal, personal moment for me. Um, again, it's, it's, it's historic, but, um I chose it and put it on my list because it's one that I wish I could have done.
2: Well, and I think you are um you're you're touching on one that I had on my list. Uh, Lou might have had on his list. I'm sure people who are listening, I'm sure we can all sort of lump these into one opening day of Disneyland, opening day of Magic Kingdom, opening day of Epcot. You know, those are some of the moments that you would like to have been there for. You know, being part of those opening day festivities, seeing what it was like, certainly for Disneyland when things did not go well and, you know, water fountains didn't work and toilets didn't work and there wasn't enough food and women's heels are sinking into the the concrete because it's not dry yet. And and just, there's so much chaos that was going on, which again, on day two, you know, Disney is already starting to uh, take the necessary steps to remediate the problems of, the, the the traffic and the bad food service and the ride capacity and all the things that had gone wrong on, on day one, they were fixing on day two. Um, so I think that's, that's one that probably a, touches a lot of people, which is being there at the gates on opening day of insert favorite park here. Exactly.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, of course, uh, at least Epcot, Magic Kingdom and Disneyland were on my list. And But kind of the tie in the Epcot um, from a creative standpoint, you know, that moment in Imagineering when they took – when they were battling between what should Epcot be? Should it be a future attraction? Should it be a World's Fair attraction? And that moment where they took those two models and sh- put them together and went, this is it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, that's the thing about this list, and obviously, why I didn't make it a top ten? Because there are so many, and I think there are so many that that touch us or or speak to us for different reasons, right? Whether whether it's because we're fans, because of the, the the personal aspect, the, the family aspect, the entrepreneurial aspect, um, wh- whatever it might be. But certainly, being there on an opening day for a park has to um, has to be one. So, I'll um this is not a go with me here, but but maybe it, it is. And I don't want to sort of, you know, bring down the, the, the room a little bit, but understand why um, I, I have this on my list. And then we'll sort of, maybe we'll hit our last few in sort of rapid fire succession. Um, I really would like to have been in the room or a fly on the wall or whatever it might be. The day that Roy took the reins, after Walt Disney died. So when Walt died on December 15th, 1966, uh, obviously I am incredibly paraphrasing. I mean, not just the company, but it was a, a a loss that impacted the world on so many different levels. And when he passed, he didn't necessarily pass the reins on to somebody else. and And I sort of imagine that first day, everybody looking at each other like, well, I'm not going to take, I can't step into Walt's shoes. I don't know what his vision was. I can't, whoever's going to step in next is no way going to be able to live up to the expectations of, you know, what Walt had left behind. Um, you know, the the, the the plane, as it were, was, was in flight already for uh, Disneyland. And it was Roy who really had, you know, sort of, was in a state of retirement, who stepped up and said, "Okay, I'm going to oversee the the financing and the construction of Disney World, and I'm going to, like Walt did, I'm going to bring all these people and surround myself by the people who are the very best at what they did, whether it was, you know, Don Tatum or Card Walker or or even you know Ron Miller, um, and he stepped up and led the company at a time when. It did not have a leader, and and I think nobody really wanted to step into shoes that they knew nobody was going to be able to fill, at least not in the way that uh, that that Walt had left them. So, you know, I, I applaud and and admire Roy Disney for for doing what he did, and to be witness to that first meeting when he walks in and says, "Okay." I'm in charge, and here's the course that we're going to follow. This is what we're going to do, and A, B, C, and D, and started sort of you know doling out the instructions to uh, to people, you know, much like the way Walt did. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Walt was that he was a bumblebee, and he went around sort of pollinating all the flowers and, and encouraging people and telling them what to do. I think to a certain degree, Roy now had to take that similar type of role and repollinate all the flowers with Walt's vision, which was not necessarily clear for places uh, like Epcot, you know, was sort of a uh, um, a design in, in his mind's eye that he sort of sketched off on a ceiling. But the fact that he was able to step into that and keep the company going and not just in, on the theme park side, but – you know, under the supervision of Roy, you know, make sure things like you know, Jungle Book came out the next year, and Aristocats, and Love Bugs, and so, so many other things that um, that were already sort of in the works, and then to continue to uh, strengthen and grow the company with with new ideas and things that Walter left behind, or things that had started to come into play even after he had passed. So that first day that Roy took the reins um, and that first meeting is one that I would certainly like to pay witness to.
1: That's a big, that's another big moment because the company could have gone an entirely different direction.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, And it would, I think it was probably, possibly on the brink of, you know, um, decline and and potential failure if, if it didn't find a leader who was going to be able to, you know, pick up the pieces at that moment and, and pieces that didn't necessarily fit together. You know, Walt did not leave a blueprint for everything he wanted done next. And, and I applaud Roy for being able to, to do that.
0: And I think if I recall, I don't remember which biography it was I read that but- Roy didn't want to do it. He did it for one reason only, and that was the love of his brother.
1: Yeah. Yep. Well, And, and of course, that's why he changed the name from Disney World to Walt Disney World. Walt yep. Disney World. Yeah.
2: So, all right, Lewis, um, I don't know how many more you, you have on your list. Maybe we could sort of hit these kind of rapid fire. All
1: right. I have a couple of short ones, but the first short one I'll do is... That moment in around 1949, considering Disneyland was opened in 55, when Walt and Lillian bought their house in Holmby Hills, and he got together with Ward Kimball to build the model railroad in his backyard,
2: hmm.
1: which, of course, then developed and, you know, was the continued development from Griffith Park into Disneyland.
2: I like that. Get yeah, shoot so, actually sort of
0: on my list as well. yeah. Except I want, want to, to ride the, the, the miniature
1: train. <laughs> 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 Do you want to keep you, alternating? I got them? to ride
0: it at, uh, when we did the, the ABD, we got to ride a miniature train. Mm-hmm. But to have ridden it through Walt's, Walt's backyard, backyard and yeah. had an ice cream soda afterwards,
1: that what? would have been kind of cool.
2: Yeah, so God, Lou, just shoot through your last few and then Elisa hit yours and then I'll hit mine and we'll wrap this up.
1: Okay, so my last two is that moment in company history when the company wasn't on the best of footing and Michael Eisner took over and decided we're going to build hotels into what we now know Walt Disney World to be, considering there was only Polynesian contemporary and Fort Wilderness.
2: Yeah. Yeah, look, I've said in the past, you know, um, Michael Eisner is a dream interview for this show because I would like to talk to him about, you know, so much of of what we re, we know and remember about Eisner is the the way it ended and the way he left and some of the bad things at the end. But he did excuse me more for this company during his tenure than arguably, you know, many of the other people who had uh, come before him. And I would love to be able to talk to him about some of that same type of, visionary decisions he had and the growth and the expansion and the solidification uh, of the company during his time.
1: Yeah. Cause all the hotels and the theming, I mean, that's just, that's what we know now Walt Disney world to be.
2: I agree. Yep.
1: And the, the final one I have on my list is that minute and the conversation that was had of, we are now going to begin Disney cruise line.
2: Hmm. Yeah, because originally they had sort of um, – they were working with the Big Red Boat, which was not a Disney uh, – it was not owned by Disney. They was sort of – they ran Disney cruises for Disney, and then they were like, you know, I think we got this, Big Red Boat. We're going to build our own ship. Peace out. Thanks. <laughs>
1: in the creative process of designing that very first ship.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I look – in. you know, as a, as a huge fan of the cruise line, um, I think that too – Is a um, one of those defining moments um, because I just I love me some Disney Cruise so. um, And now you get two more coming. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, Alisa, what about for you? What are the last um, ones that you have on your list?
0: I just have one left on my list. We've covered most of them, Um, and again, it's a personal moment. Kind of ties back to Mary Poppins. I would have loved to have been at the premiere of Mary Poppins at Grumman's Chinese theater, yeah. but I want to sit right behind Walt Disney and Mrs. Travers. I, w- I want to be behind them because I want to be able to see what's going on. Not necessarily on the screen, but with those two. Yeah. I like that. Cause I'm, I- I've heard stories. I've seen the movie. But yeah, I would have liked to have been there. And and think about being on the or next to the red carpet as Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke and Walt and Lillian Disney are walking down the carpet.
2: And again, it was not one that was guaranteed success. You know, there was a lot that uh, that went into creating and financing that film. And and uh, again, I think a, a a touchstone in. Not just Disney history, but I think movie making history, and it still remains my uh, my all time favorite. So mine as well. <laughs> all right, so my uh, my my last couple of ones are are very quick. Um, I would love to go back to October first, two thousand five, um, the day that Bob Iger took over and that Michael Eisner retired. Um, you talk about a shift in leadership and leadership styles and direction um look I've said this many many times in in the past Uh, I think history is going to look back on Bob Iger's time at this company and the growth that has taken place um as being unprecedented in the company's history um and that shift in attitude, that shift in style, that shift in vision and management on that very first day, I would like to know what Bob Iger's first day looked and sounded like, and to be able to accompany him through the halls and through those initial meetings when he's laying out his vision, I think would be um, fascinating from a historical and a business perspective. Uh, that leads me to... Uh, I have two last ones, and this next one is multiple ones uh, in one. And I I envision them to be phone calls, actually, um, that probably led to meetings. And there really, there would be three of them. Um, I'd like to pay witness to the sit-down conversation with Steve Jobs about acquiring Pixar. Uh, I would love to be um, patched in to the phone call uh, when he calls George Lucas and says, "We want to buy it." What do you mean? What do you mean? We all of it. We want it all. We want Indiana Jones. We want Star Wars. We want the. We want the dog. Give, we, give us everything. Um, that first phone call. Because look, at at some point, right? These conversations. These multi-billion-dollar deals are are are. are Initiated by a phone call or an email or something, that first conversation when he's like, "George, how are you? How's things at the ranch? Nice. Listen, so this Star Wars thing. What are you? What are you doing with this? Because you know we've got four billion dollars. Um, same thing with Marvel. You know that that." The acquisition of Marvel in 2009, from what I understand, happened very, very quickly. Um, you know, as, as things were being announced, you know, ink was still drying on paper, and those phone calls—the the Pixar phone call, the Lucas phone call, the Marvel phone call—because going back to Iger, in my opinion, his legacy is going to be the acquisitions, right? The things, and I, and again, I think it very much was like Walt he being the company surrounding yourself by the people i.e. the companies that are the very best at what they do walt surrounded himself with the best animators that bob Iger s- says we're going to surround ourselves with the best companies in entertainment and family entertainment and it's marvel and it's pixar and it's lucas and that's what he did you know i mean now look where the company is. They have those three properties. They have the Muppets. I say, well, they have jokingly, like if they <laughs> buy McGill a gorilla, like my childhood is complete. Like that's the only thing that uh, the only piece of the puzzle that's missing. Um, and those initial phone calls when, you know, all of a sudden Disney is reaching out and saying, we want to acquire your multi-billion dollar company. Um, and, and how those conversations proceeded after that. And, um, uh, and the last thing, <clears throat> excuse me, on my list um was the last thing that I put down. And um, it's not a day. It's not a date that I can point to specifically. um the The moment in in history that I would want to go back to, and maybe this is the one that I should have or would still put first, is I would want to just spend one day with Walt. I want to spend one day with Walt. I want to see what his morning is like when he goes off to work, when he drops his kids off at school. I want to see him at work being that bumblebee. I want to see how he interacted with and encouraged and you know worked with his team around him and the employees and how he treated people and how people looked at him and the decisions that he made and walked a lot with him. And just spend a day, you know, Walt with Walt the, the bumblebee, Walt the creative, Walt the entrepreneur, Walt the businessman, Walt the leader, all the things that fall into the business spectrum. And then I want to go home with Walt. And I want to see, I don't know why I get choked up. Um, I, I want to see Walt with his kids. I want to see how he went home and, you know, talk to his wife about his day. Um, going back to what you said, least I, I want to see Walt with his friends. I want to see Walt when the cameras and the newspapers and the photographer, like when they weren't on him, you know, what was it like? And if you go back to show number nine, you know, talking about having ice cream, you know, Michael Brogy tells a story about going to Walt's house as a kid and, you know, Walt's serving him ice cream and he's serving the adults drinks and, you know, riding the trains and, and just listening in on the conversations that the adults are, are having. Um, I, I want to spend a, a, a morning, you know, I want to know what Walt's night is like. You know, I, I have to imagine... He is the consummate entrepreneur. Everybody else has gone to sleep and he's still sitting there sketching, thinking, writing notes, whatever he's doing late into the night, always thinking about you know, what's new, what's next. How am I going to improve? How am I going to be a better leader, a better boss, a better dad, a better husband, a better example, a better entrepreneur, whatever it is. And uh, if I could spend... Any, I don't care what it is, any of those 24 hours, um, you know, with Walt and even especially that family time, you know, how much was Walt able to unplug, not that he used to unplug that time, but unplug himself from the, the business side of Walt, from Walt being the businessman. And what were the dinner time conversations like with his kids? You know, what did he do after dinner with his kids, you know, what were the conversations like that he had, you know, with his wife and and, you know, we we hear about Walt, you know, driving his kids to school. And and look, I, I get it as somebody who, you know, I love what I do, because one of the things I get to do is pick up my kids from school. And it might sound ridiculous, but if I was still practicing law, I wouldn't be able to do that. And it's so important. And, and I just I get the impression or maybe I just want to believe that it was those are the things that were important to Walt Disney as well. And that's why I think the only thing that would matter on my list for me to see is any day uh, just spent. With Walt Disney, so um, I love, 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 and I told you this in the queue for Space Mountain at whatever <laughs> o'clock it was at night. I love this idea uh, because I'm sure, as many of the things that we touched on our list, there are people going, "My uh, Moncello, how did you forget about blah? How do you not?" And I think there are going to be ones that are very you know, uh, subjective for people and I would love to hear them. Um, Actually, and if you also, and I'll link in the show notes to show number nine with Michael Bogie, some of the other episodes we talked about um, earlier this year on the WW Radio blog, they reviewed some of their great moments in Disney history that have impacted uh, film and attractions and and events from, they talk about multiplane cameras and a, a parade that took place only one day ever in Walt Disney World and, Sometimes when Disney history collided with American history, and uh, I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes. But I want to hear from you, my friend, who is sitting, standing, driving, treadmilling, golfing, whatever you're doing while you're listening. What is that one? I don't pull a Loom on Jello here. Give me one <laughs> moment in Disney history that you wish you could travel back in time. And witness in person. There's lots of ways you could let me know. My favorite way is if you call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. Because I think you can convey so much more in the written word. And don't have to worry about typos. You can also tweet me at Lumangello, Come to facebook.com slash Radio. Leave your comments there uh, under the link for this week's podcast. Or go to www.radio.com. Click on this week's podcast episode and let's keep the conversation going in the show notes there. Dr. Lewis, Miss Alisa, guys, thank you so, so very much for uh, what has been a fascinating, entertaining, fun, and yes, I guess even sentimental and emotional look back, Um, not only on, on the, the history of the Disney company, but it's a really nice to sort of hear how these memories affect you guys personally. So thank you guys so so much for being on. Thank you, Lou. But I will tell you, there was clearly not enough talk about food on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> if you could dine anywhere with Walt Disney past present or whatever, past or present, where would you take where would you go or where would you take Walt? Brennan's. Wow. Oh, I, I do like me some Brennan. <laughs> All right, let me wait. Let me rephrase that. Where where in a Disney theme park or a Disney hotel right now, if Walt came back for, for three hours, well, it's a Lumangelo dinner, so six hours. If you could take Walt out to dinner for six hours, what restaurant do you take him to?
1: Mm. Oh, I got to use
2: that as a question of the week at some point in the future. Where would you take I Walt to I- dinner? I-
1: I would have to go with my favorite, which is flying fish.
2: Wow. Interesting. For me,
0: Walt was kind of a plain food kind of guy. I mean, I'm thinking sushi probably wasn't <laughs> on his list of things to eat. Walt did there. Yeah, I haven't been there yet, but I think I would take him to Art Smith Homecoming.
2: Wow. Very interesting. I think that would be food
0: he would like
2: interesting maybe that should be the question of the week Oh, we have alright so listen you can tell me what's your favorite moment in Disney history and I'll have to make sure I tweet this too where would you take Walt to dinner in what theme park or Disney hotel or Disney property where would you take Walt to dinner I'm going to save my answer because I don't know it yet
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you know Walt loved New Orleans so Brennan's a decent Brennan's is a good That'll answer I have to,
2: would I, have like, to would of course, I would have like to have introduce in Walt New to the Orleans concept football. of stretchy pants. I don't think actually they don't think they had stretchy pants in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> Walt, these are yoga pants. Put them on, trust me. And by the time dinner's over, you're going to thank me. I guarantee it.
1: How would you like to have walked through the streets of New Orleans with Walt when he was here?
2: Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm
0: through the streets of Walt and uh, didn't he find a little mechanical bird in New Orleans? Yep. Yes he did.
2: It's time for our Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history. Or see how well you pay attention, not just to the details that you see, but sometimes in those that you hear. And then if you think you know the answer, you can enter via email or better yet through our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's and select our winner. So last week we stayed virtually in Epcot Center for the trivia question. And I brought you back around to my favorite attraction in Walt Disney World, which is, of course, dining. And one of my favorite locations is Katsura Grill, the quick service location in the Japan Pavilion in Epcot. And your question last week was to tell me, what was that location previously known as? Now, Katsura Grill opened in December 2011 under that name, but was originally known as the Yakitori House. Now back on show number 270, I did a live dining review of the Katsura Grill, and we talked not just about the food, but the history of that location as well, so you can find out about the changes between Yakitori House and Katsura Grill. But back to this week's trivia question, I took all of the correct entries, and again thanks to the more than a thousand of you that entered this week. You are playing for the 102 ways to save money for not Walt Disney World book, all seven of my virtual audio tours of the parks, both of which you can find on the WW Radio shop, a WW Radio Magic Band cover, stickers, and a hot and cold travel mug. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Matt McKnight. So Matt, congratulations. I have your information from the online form you filled out. I will get your prize package out to right, right away But if you played last week and didn't win, that's okay. Put the past behind you, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So I thought we would try something new this week to make it even easier for you, and I'm talking to you, to win. And it's Walt Disney World fill in the blank. I'm going to give you a line from an attraction or a show, something maybe even that you'll see on a sign or a poster, etc., And all you need to do is fill in the blank. And I'm going to make it really easy for you as we try it out this week. And I'm even going to tell you where the line is from. Sometimes I might. Sometimes you have to figure that part out too. So you heard on the segment this week that we spent some time in Tomorrowland and had a really nice evening walking around and spending some time in the showing of a Disney classic attraction. So fill in the blank for this line from Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. Jimmy, hurry up with that. Blank. You have until Sunday, September 18th at 11.59pm to email your answer to contest at www.radio.com. Better yet, use the online form. Go to www.radio.com. Click on this week's podcast, Fill out the information and your answer there Because if you win, I'm going to send you the book I'm going to send you the audio tours The Magic Band cover, the stickers And why not, I'm going to throw in A WDW Radio hot and cold Travel mug as well So good luck And have fun going to do it for this week's show. Thank you again so very much. I cannot express how much I appreciate you and the fact that you take your time, which I know is so valuable to you, and that you share some of it with me. I want to start off again by saying some quick thanks to some of the new members of the WW Radio Nation family, including Chauncey Friend, Jewel Bush, Sean Groundwater, Karen Musgrove, Sarah DeLeon, and Thomas Franklin. I sincerely appreciate you. And if you want to help the show and join the hundreds of others who are part of the family that get exclusive rewards every month, like new scavenger hunts, we have a five a private Facebook group, custom personalized magic band covers logo gear, shirts, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World, and exclusive live video group calls and more. To find out more and be part of the family, visit www.radio.com slash support. Again, it's completely optional to you, but it's a great way for you to help support the show. And don't forget that a portion of the proceeds of your contributions will go to the Dream Team Project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Again, visit www.radio.com slash support. All right, a couple of other quick announcements. Don't forget that the purge of my Disney collection is still going on on eBay. New auctions begin and end every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Everything from vintage stuff from the 60s and 70s to books, maps, attraction scripts, cast member materials, and more. You can visit www.radio.com slash eBay. Also, my Momentum Weekend Workshop in Walt Disney World, October 15th and 16th, is coming up. The Mastermind Day on Sunday is sold out. But if you are trying to find a way to turn what you love into what you do or take your passion to the next level, I invite you to check out lumonjello.com momentum to find out more. I'm going to announce the speakers and the itinerary this week, but it is a very small, very intimate, interactive workshop to help turn what you love into what you do. And of course, I hope you know that I would love to hear from you, however you would like to do it. If you have a question for the show, you can email me, lou at WWRadio.com. you want to be heard on the air, call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. You can also connect with me online. I'm at Lou Mangello on Twitter on Facebook, on Pinterest and Instagram and the Facebook page is facebook.com slash WW Radio. If you haven't liked the page yet, I suggest that you do. There's some really neat things coming that I've been planning very, very soon. Of course, nothing beats a handshake and a hug and as much as I love connecting with you online, I would love to meet you in person Our next meet of the month is actually this Sunday. Now, I had to change the date from Saturday to Sunday. So it's Sunday, September 18th at Sleepy Hollow Refreshments, i.e. Nutella waffles from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. If you visit the events page over at www.radio.com, you can RSVP, let me know that you're coming. Come alone, bring the whole family. It is, of course, completely free. Would love to meet you there. We also have other events like our Double Dip Cruise to Castaway Key, another event coming up next summer, Alaska in 2018, and more and i also have a number of events and meetups on the road as i travel to speak at conferences or to events or to schools if you visit loumangelo.com if you visit loumangelo.com you can find out how i can come to speak to your school or to your business and help get you from where you are to where you want to be thanks as always to mouse fan travel my official and recommended travel provider for a free no obligation quote visit them at mousefantravel.com Thanks, as always, to Tim from Celebrations Magazine. You can get that delivered to your inbox or to your mailbox uh, by visiting celebrationspress.com. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links to this or your favorite episode on your favorite Disney-related Facebook group or page. Or just pin it or post it or share it however you like. Uh, Please also take just a couple seconds to rate and review the show over on iTunes. Thanks to you, we have more than 1,200 five-star reviews. want to thank some recent reviewers, including Cougar3514V, who says this has everything for the Disney geek, regardless of what you love about Disney. This podcast has it. Peg Teal says, this podcast always makes me smile. It's the best, and if you're planning a trip or just need a dose of Disney, the playful banter and the passion signs through on the podcast, and more importantly, it always brings a smile to her face. So, Peg, thank you so very much. Glower69 says, this does, uh, the, it's a great show, and Lou does an amazing job of discussing the endless topics about Disney. I listen to the show while traveling and commuting to work. And Shirk66 says, this is my weekly happiness. I've been listening for more than a year, it's always positive, always entertaining, always full of advice about Disney, and in the words of Lou Mangello, he says, it is awesome sauce. So thanks to all of you who have taken the time to rate and review the show. Search for WW Radio in iTunes. Just visit www.radio.com slash iTunes for information and uh, how to review the show. Um, and finally, um, I just need to take a second, because as I am recording this podcast, it is a Sunday night on September 11th, and I am sure that no matter where you are, um, you remember uh, where you were 15 years ago. And I think for others, they are constantly reminded of the losses that they suffered. Um, We remember where we were and what we were doing and what we were feeling. And I distinctly remember not just that morning, but the days and the weeks that followed. I lived in New Jersey and I would walk out of my house and I remember smelling the, the concrete and the drywall and just seeing this this cloud that continued to um, hover in the air. Um, but I also, I remember something else about the anniversary of this occasion and I remember how for what seemed like such a long period of time, this tragedy um, did have some good come from it. And look, I always want to look at the positive in any situation and I just recall how we as Americans began to treat one another after this tragedy. Things were different um, in a lot of ways, but in in some regards in a good way. You know, I noticed that we would smile as we walk, would walk by one another and we would shake hands with each other and help one another. And I think for a while we truly were a united states of America and Our differences, however uh, great or petty, were were cast aside. And I think, you know, no longer do we look at each other as classified by color or beliefs or party or anything else that separated us. We looked at the things that united us together. And in, in some ways, it's disappointing that it takes a tragedy to bring people together as opposed to us always celebrating what unites us as opposed to looking for the things that separate us. And, you know, a house divided itself cannot stand, right? You're probably familiar with the quote from Lincoln's speech in 1858 or the verse from the Bible from where that originated. But wherever it came from, and whoever may have said it first isn't important, but the message itself is so powerful and it's so true because that house isn't just our, our physical or familiar home. It's not our state or region or country. I think it applies to all of us as a people, and physical differences and physical borders shouldn't separate us and divide us. You know, we are all the same. You know, we are all brothers and sisters, no matter what we look like or where we are from. And I think if you want to honor the people and the family and the victims and the heroes that still continue to suffer from the tragedies of 9-11, I, I ask you, I invite you, possibly implore you to, to do something, today to help close some of those gaps that we have created between us and it can start with the smallest gesture of a smile or a handshake yeah maybe even a hug um just go and be kind to one another you will be surprised how powerful those gestures repeated often and daily really are and the difference that you can make in the world um one act one day one person at a time so forgive me for going on that long. I, d- I didn't mean to. I just I just hope that we, we can all just be kind and respectful and, and helpful and generous to one another and just embrace what unites us and not what divides us. And no matter who you are or where you're from or what you are doing, my sincere hope is that this is going to be your very best week ever. Thank you so very much. Have an amazing day and an amazing week. Look forward to seeing you next time. It's See you. It's a small world after all.
0: It's a small world after all. It's a small, small
1: Remember, it's about the small children of the world, they're the hope
0: of the future. And that, he gave us that to start with. And so we came up with this concept, it's a small world after all. Let's not blow each other up. Let's learn to respect each other and love each other. And that's what we're saying without saying those words. We just said it's a small world after all. It's a world of laughter and a world of tears, a world of hopes and a world of fears. There's so much that we share. It's time we're aware It's a small world, after all. That's what we said in the song. And if you hear it as a jingle, you
1: want to shoot us. But if you hear it slowly and hear the words, you say, hey, it is a prayer for peace, isn't it? And that's what we wrote.